The thought that I would like to have you hold in your head with me this morning is um, spiritual formation as the cultivation of virtue. So we'll come back to that, but just kind of hold that in your head and heart. So we all know how this uh, story ends, this story of Peter, how he doesn't keep the vow that we just heard read, that he, to the servant girl, twice denies knowing Jesus, and then a third time denies knowing Jesus to bystanders. And on hearing the rooster crows, you know, he remembers Jesus' words, and he weeps, collapsing into tears. But it's kind of interesting. We love Peter, don't we? There's just something about him. I think we see ourselves in his story. Feels like he has this pull, kind of like driving down the freeway and there's a wreck, you know, and you know you don't want to look at it, shouldn't be looking at it, but everything in you wants to make you look at this wreck. It's kind of like we see in Peter this something that we just can't take our eyes off. And I think that it, it like touches something in us where we know that even in our sincere followership of Jesus that we make and that Peter's life reminds us that Christian growth is actually a long journey full of ups and downs. So the core insight that I want us to think about and, and see this morning is this, um, that Peter really believed that he would not deny Jesus. I don't think this was bluff. I don't think it was bluster. I think he was shocked at the thought that he would. And so much so that he actually separates himself from the others and says, well, the others might, but I won't. And I think he really did think that even if everyone else is ashamed of you when things start falling to pieces, I won't. And this, I think, is why he weeps so bitterly when he failed. And so what's going on here? What's the disconnect between this really passionate vow in him to follow Jesus and not deny him and what actually happens? And I think the answer is that Jesus knows that there was something deeper, something more profound, something more powerful at work in Peter than his sincere vow. And this is why Jesus says, actually, Peter, it's not going to work out this way, but this very night you'll deny me three times. And so thinking of Peter's weeping, this is where I think, again, we so find ourselves attracted to and in alignment with him. Because I think when we fail God, like Peter, our mind becomes a swirl of emotions of embarrassment and anger and fear and shame and despair. You know, we start to feel unclean and unworthy and maybe begin to wonder, does God still love me or have I blown it here for the last time? And like, he's finally done with me. Well, ironically, I ended up actually sitting this week a lot with Peter's letters and not just this passage. Because I've always had this intuition that whatever was going on in Peter in this story, something different emerges in his letters. So something happened between this moment his reconnecting with Jesus on the beach at Galilee and, and feeling the forgiveness and reorientation and recommissioning of his life, and then his letters. And I think his letters reveal that over the long journey of his formation, he came to see the reality of what Jesus was talking about. 
I think Peter came to see that sometimes he was animated by, by really deep impulses in him at the sub or pre-conscious level. Are you tracking with me here? His vow was conscious. But Jesus knew that something was animating and would animate Peter that was at the pre-conscious or subconscious level. Now, I don't mean to say that Peter would have thought here like a professional philosopher working out a tight argument in practice of virtue ethics. I don't mean that. But I do mean that I see, at least in Peter's letters, the cultivating of something like virtue, something like what philosophers might think of as virtue. And all I really mean by virtue is like an inner readiness or a stance that's able to do what's right and to avoid the wrong. So like since this is football season, before every play, every player on the field is in a stance, right? Right, can you picture this with me? The linemen are in a certain sort of stance, the offensive linemen. The linebackers on defense are in a slightly different stance. But now, but try to track this with me, and sorry if you never played sports, best I can do, is that that stance has underneath it a mental picture a readiness, or if you've ever played tennis, think of somebody about to receive serve, right? They've got the grip on their racket, just especially the way they anticipate a serve coming. Their hips and shoulders are square. They're in balance. There's like a readiness to act appropriate to what's about to happen. And that's just a really simple way of thinking about virtue and how it works, that there's, there's just, we cultivate in us this sort of settled, habitual disposition, like the stance of an athlete. There's a settledness there. There's a habituatedness there. They've, they've learned to do it. It's, a, it's like a disposition to do whatever they're about to do on offense or defense. Or we might think of it more in terms of a will that's bent towards what good can I do here rather than how can I get my way here. Right? The person who consistently asks of this life and in all the people and events of their lives, what good can I do here? See, that's, a, that's an inner posture. That's a bent of the will. And others, just for instance, who find themselves constantly asking of life, how can I get my way here? Well, that's just a, a different sort of bent of the will. It's a different stance, right? It's a different posture towards life. And for us, of course, the ultimate kind of formational vision is Christ-like character that's cultivated in a patient, grace, and love-based journey. Dennis sent me some work that he had done on uh, Peter this week, and one of the things that Dennis refreshingly reminded me of is that how much of, that this whole thing is funded by the initiating, sustaining, completing love of God. It's God that does this, not us. There's something about, we, yes, we are cultivating something, but it's always in this, not only previous in terms of sequence, but having a higher priority, right? It's not just the initiation of God, sequentially, right? He initiates and we respond. That's true and super helpful. But I think beyond that, there's a, there's a priority of substance. Are you with me here? Not just a priority of sequence, but a priority of substance. Like it's the substance of that love of God, that patient, grace, love-based journey that we're on. 
And then we do it in this community of faith and within the routine practices of worship and prayer and service. And, and this is what's all meant to fund this, help us, help us assist us in, in creating this inner stance. And so just, I'll give you just a quick few little snippets of Peter's letters, and I think you'll see what I'm saying. Now, so, so holding in your mind the cultivation of an inner stance, an inner readiness towards Christ-likeness. So as you hear Peter saying, don't conform to evil desires. Be holy. Rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Abstain from sinful desires. Now, there you really get a peek into virtue. Because it's, what he's picturing here is the vice of our desires and then morphing into a virtue of desires. So abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Be eager to do good. Now, I just want you to think of Peter. Think of the eagerness underneath. Lord, if, every, if, if all these other guys screw up when things start going crazy, don't worry. Got your back. I won't. I, 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 I just won't. Right? So, like, you, I think you can hear in that maybe an arrogance or something. And who knows? We're reading between the lines. But I personally don't hear an arrogance. I hear, like, an eagerness to do good. I, that he thinks that he's in the position to do it. Are you feeling me here? He thinks he's in the stance to do it. And what he discovers is that his inner posture, his inner readiness wasn't actually there. Above all, he says, love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another. Use whatever gift you have to serve others. Live holy and godly lives, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, see, that's, that's Peter's imagination. Post-denial, post-being forgiven, redirected, recommissioned on that beach in Galilee, as he thinks through his time and experience with Jesus, these are the kind of things he comes to. And then I think most importantly, the passage in, uh, I think, 2 Peter 1 or 2, where he says, make every effort. Some translations have, apply all due diligence, apply all diligence. But make every effort to add to your faith goodness. The NIV has goodness. It's actually the Greek term from which we get the word virtue. Make every effort to add to your faith, as the ESV has it, virtue. Or as the NASB has it, moral excellence. So again, can you just hear Peter? Like, I thought I had it right. But I actually didn't have the moral excellence, the inner readiness, the, the virtue to live into my vow. And then, you know, you know the passage, he goes on to say, and to your goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and you know the rest of that passage. Well, I know how this works. Everything I just read to you, all those thoughts from Peter in his letters, they can sound just like an overwhelming list of, of religious do's and don'ts, right? Be holy, do this, don't do that. Yes, and I get how some people go there. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that they can be the overflow of a life that's positive and joyful, like a child, focused on the cultivation of an inner life of virtue from which these things are the natural overflow. 
So what if religion, negatively construed, could become something like this? I don't know why this is a big memory, and it's sort of a fond memory, actually. But in our little house that I grew up in in Santa Ana, it was one of those houses where, you know, the garage is in the back. It's not attached to the house. And so on the, on the garage, you know, above the garage door was a basketball hoop. And basketball was my first love when I was a kid. And I have so many memories of my mom bursting out the back door saying, get in here, you know, it's time for bed or whatever. But I was out there shooting and, and just making sure that my elbow was not flying out, that the ball was coming off my fingertips right and rotating properly. It was so much fun. I loved it. You couldn't stop me from doing it. Why? Because I was building in myself an inner readiness so that when the ball came to me in a, in a game, I could take it and I could immediately do what was embodied in me to do. Well, what if our religion could become something childlike and joy-filled like that? Like, oh, I see where internally my elbow flies out a little bit. Or the release point isn't consistent. And if the re release point isn't consistent, no shot's gonna be consistent. Right, so we come, like what if we could come to this in that sort of way so that when, when we see something a little bent, it doesn't produce guilt and shame and ugliness and self-hatred, but what if it just produced, give me the ball again and I'll get it straight this time. I think something like that is what's available to us. And it's why I remember, I mean, Dennis picked up on this too in his work, and I remember when we were teaching through the letters of Peter, I remember suggesting to you that beautiful thing that what Jesus has in the back of his mind when he says, oh, Peter, you're really gonna deny me three times, he doesn't have in his mind shame and guilt and putting him down. He has in his mind, but I'll see you on the beach. Like, it's gonna be okay. You're gonna deny me three times, but it's gonna be okay. I'll see you on the beach and we'll get it sorted out. And we'll figure it out what it is that you really love. Now, right, we don't have time to get into John 21 this morning, but right, you remember that passage. We'll figure it out together. Do you really love me? Or is there something else that you actually love? You think you love me, but maybe you actually love security more. And so you told that girl you didn't know me. But that's all right, we'll deal with it. We'll, we'll figure it out together and we'll get your love straightened out and you'll be forgiven and recommissioned and you'll become the Peter who is this stunning tower of spiritual insight that we see in his letters. I read this week a really lovely story of a famous Russian composer who I can't remember his name, who was with his daughter, well, probably with his whole family, but with his daughter in this really stately, you know, quiet, lovely, expensive European hotel. And his little daughter, you know, being the daughter of a musician, she's probably three years old or something, if you can imagine, went down to the lobby of this hotel and started banging on the piano. And the guests started getting really, you know, uptight, irritated, maybe even mad, because it's this beautiful, stately, quiet hotel, and she's banging away. Well, her father, this famous Russian composer, doesn't walk up to her and yell at her, tell her to stop. He sits down next to her. And as her plunking and banging continues, he begins to play in time and in harmony. 
And within a few moments, I'm told, there arose between the two of them music that the people in the lobby of that hotel stopped and listened to. As her father made sense out of his power, his capacity, his goodness, his energy, his creativity, her father was able to take her clanging, plunking little life and make harmony out of it and play in time with her such that music arose. And that, I think, is, is you know, maybe a really great picture of, again, that initiating love of God, but the, not just the initiating part of it, but the power of it that surrounds us. I mean, as I started thinking of the story, I liked it better if I was telling the story. I liked it better thinking of the father putting his arms around her, right, like almost standing behind her and, and uh, playing on each side and taking this sort of brokenness and making something good out of it. Or I think, I mean, this really works for me because I'm particularly directionally challenged, and long before there was Siri, I had Debbie, because um, <laughs> I am seriously directionally challenged. I mean, like, bad. I, I can't even get to work sometimes, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I think, lately, I've been thinking, you know, of, uh, thank God for Google Maps, right, for me, and, uh, and how Google Maps never gives up on me. You know, she's never once said to me, dude, we're done here. <laughs> you are so directionally challenged, we're just finished here. No, she just, I sometimes wonder if she's getting irritated at me. Like when I hear recalculating, I sometimes wonder if there's a little sarcasm in there maybe or a little put down, but she just keeps recalculating, just recalculating, and she gets me there. There's just something like that, I think, that Peter learned that that the bent parts of him would just get recalculated. And as that bent, twisted stuff got recalculated, it came into an alignment that was something like virtue. An inner readiness to do what those boyish vows wanted to do that at the time he couldn't do. And I think that's something like what Jesus does with us. And again, as Dennis reminded me again this week, that it's always God's initiative that's determinative, right? That girl was just plunking. But the initiative of the father and the capacity of the father, that's what's determinative. You're never left alone in this to cultivate virtue on your own. It's that as you hear plunking and clanging in your own soul, that's, that God himself will surround that and bring it into something that's harmonious and in time. So this morning, I want to help us find a little pivot. I, I feel like we've worked really hard this summer and into the fall now with a lot of stuff from Mark, you know, helping us look at ourselves and, and help us determine to the degree that we want to follow Jesus and are following him. We've done a lot of hard work, and I want to just take the last three or four minutes of this message and help us have a little pivot this morning away from that sort of challenge to something encouraging. So I want you now to get out your um, announcement sheets because it's got our ordinary time prayer on the back. And here I'm going to just read to you um, a few scriptures. I'm gonna ask you to settle yourself, especially in your seat. You might even wanna close your eyes and just let these words wash over you. And when we're done, um, instead of us standing and saying this together this week, I'm gonna give you a quiet time 
to sit with that ordinary time prayer yourself and, um, and to sit with it as, as your prayer in silence. So now thinking of this initiatory, determinative love of God, hear the word of God. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And you are God's masterpiece, created anew in Jesus to do the good things he planned for you to do. As the psalmist said, God will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. He will counsel you with his loving eye on you. For the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. And though we stumble, we will not fall. For the Lord upholds us with his hand. And he does not treat us as our sins deserve, the psalmist said, or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. And so as the prophet said, let the wicked forsake their ways and turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. Turning to our God, he will freely pardon us. For who is like you, the prophet said, who pardons sin and forgives transgression. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Having compassion on us, treading our sins underfoot, and hurling all our evil into the depths of the sea. Now, just before you sit with this prayer, I'd love you to hear this Closing, encouraging word from Ruth Bailey Barton, Ruth Haley Barton. Your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you've experienced so far, this is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or your sinfulness is the truest thing about you or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as husband or wife, mother, father, that that somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now. That is the deepest essence of who you are. And I invite you now to take that essence into an interaction with our ordinary time prayer.